Father, there are so many things to understand in these changing times. It is not the 50s, 60s, or 70s anymore, even though those decades had their own problems. Ours seem a little bit bigger at this point, although we are not threatened with extinction like in World War II. We ask, Lord, that you would provide for us just incredible insight, discernment, wisdom on how we're supposed to live. And as we look at Paul and how he explained and he reasoned with the Corinthian church why he was sent by God, we would ask that you would help us to understand these reasons and actually apply them to our lives and our understanding and our insight. We thank you that you have not left us as orphans, but you have given us a book of instruction that we might have life and have it more abundantly. I pray for all of us in here, Lord, that by the guiding of your spirit, your leading, we'd be able to live a life that is pleasing to you and say no to the things of the world, no to Satan, and no to the flesh. So, Lord, as we're in your word, provide all of these things for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we got into 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and we are dealing with suffering. It didn't quite finish up the suffering. Uh, if you'd like to catch up of where we are, you can go back and listen to that message online. But we have to ask ourselves, what causes suffering? I was talking to somebody this morning that they had a relative that was having difficulty with the goodness of God because it just seems as if God is one who wants to punish all the time. And I talked to somebody last week. I let the youth group know about this guy. His name is Brandon. Uh, I don't think I mentioned him in here. But if you could pray for him, uh, one week I was talking to him and there was no way he was going to even agree there's absolute truth or even a God. That might be true in my universe, but it's not true in his universe. And then I spent uh, this last week talking to him for about 40 to 45 minutes because he was more pliable. He thought about what he had said to me and he didn't think most of it was accurate and he wanted to carry on more of a conversation. It was the end of the day and we had to wrap everything up and he asked me, are you going to be here tomorrow? And I said, no. He goes, oh, kind of gritted his teeth. I said, but I will be back Monday. So be praying for Brandon. Uh, he was once in, with the Lord in church and he's not, and, but now he is searching. And so he also had a problem with this idea of suffering, specifically wars. Why there are wars and why would God allow this and the killing and killing as opposed to murder and I explained that to him. But this idea of so much pain and suffering caused him some harm as far as his relationship with God. So what causes suffering? The top of the list of what causes suffering is us. We cause suffering, believe it or not, uh, Job 4.8 says, As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Now, if you look at the state of our country right now, and even worldwide, there are countries that are in disarray because evil has been placed afoot. It has given freedom to run wild. And because of that, people are being injured, killed, Businesses are being destroyed. 
and they are reaping what they have sown. And some of these things are happening in, in, in the black communities and black-owned businesses are being destroyed because of this. And it's their own community. And then the people have to go outside of their community to get anything at all. They are being a detriment not only to themselves but to the people in their cities and townships and uh, those bergs that are out there. They're just destroying them. And so uh, Scripture also tells us we cause trouble, suffering for ourselves, when we are lazy. Proverbs 10 verse 4 says, Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Now, I'm sure, like you, uh, you have seen, I, I have seen many homeless people out there. All you have to do is go down Channel Road and you look under the bridges and there's people there. All you have to do is look over Channel Road and you can see some of the tents. I, I know a guy who owns a property down there. And they've taken out 40-yard dumpsters full of trash and couches and beds and wood and just structures that they have brought down there. And they don't want to work. They would rather be involved in alcohol and drugs. And that's the major reason why they're down there. There's some mental illness certainly as well. And those individuals need help. But a lazy man becomes poor. If somebody refuses to work or just is not diligent in finding a job, they're going to find themselves in need. And then the thing that Scripture tells us motivates a man is his hunger. Now, if something like drugs or alcohol or mental illness don't interrupt that, the normal individual says, I've got to do something about this and change my circumstances. And so that suffering ensues. It, it goes along with just being lazy. And so all of us, you know, we're supposed to find something to do with our hands. There's a scripture I'll give you in a minute on that. And then also, besides plowing in evil and sowing trouble and having lazy hands, it's our tongue. Our tongue gets us in trouble. Have you ever said something that just instantly resulted in conflict or anger fights, you know, brawling, taking how many videos are on the internet from somebody saying something and then just getting slapped upside the head or pushed down or run over all of these things. I've seen them so many times, just the use of the tongue. And James says in three verse eight, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And with the tongue, we praise our Lord and father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness, out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing, my brothers, this should not be. So as believers, we're not to curse anyone or cuss. Colossians 3.8 talks about that. We're to make sure our words are few and they are directed and they're not just off the cuff, so to speak. Now that's difficult for most of us because we have strong opinions and we want to say what those opinions are. And if somebody else has a different opinion, we want to give them ours and make sure theirs conforms to what ours is. That's how we are. And if somebody doesn't listen to us, well, they're just being obstinate. They're being intransigent. Don't they see the wisdom of what I believe? And then there's the conflict that takes place. And from that, there is suffering. So we are the number one cause of suffering. Then there is the world and those who are in it. John chapter 16 verse 33 says, These things I have spoken to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. 
try showing up to a gay pride parade and saying, I want to tell you about Jesus Christ and the love he has for all of you here and how there is absolute truth, there is absolute right and wrong, and I want you to know God's will in this. How long do you think you could speak before there was some type of conflict? I would dare say not very long. What if you went to a school and you said, because of the laws in the state of California where you can take anyone in K through 12 without their parents' permission and you can give them hormone replacement therapy and change your little boy into a girl or your little girl into a boy. Of course, that's not physically possible, but that's what they want to do and ruin them physically for life. You know, that's now the case in California. They can do that if you have a child or a grandchild in public school. Without your knowledge, they can do this. They've already been able to give your uh, young teenage daughter or granddaughter an abortion without you ever finding out. They are taking away the rights of parenthood or family, and they are subduing that in favor of government authority. It is evil. I dare say anyone who has their child or grandchildren in a public school should take them out. Now, how is that possible? I don't know. You know, that's difficult to do that. The indoctrination that takes place there is simply that. These now are indoctrination centers as well as the universities. And I pray the Lord just tears them down and rebuilds what we need for a good and stable society. And so the world is actually bringing suffering to all of us. Can you imagine a child who went through hormone replacement therapy reaches the early 20s and decide it was a mistake, but they can't change anything. And they encourage the psychologists and psychiatrists are not even questioning the worthiness or the fitness of some child who wants to change their gender. They will simply say, okay, let's start the process. And some of them go through and they have what is known as top surgery, where the young girls have their breasts removed. And can you imagine doing that at such a young age and then getting to your 20s or even 30s and saying, I made such a mistake, why did they allow this to happen? And I just read a secular book on this, how it is pervasive and it's unstoppable. And it was written by somebody who is not a Christian saying this needs to stop. So there is the world which causes suffering. And it's not only suffering for that individual who decides to change their gender, but it is suffering for the family too, the heartache which ensues that comes about because of that. Then the third cause of our suffering is Satan. He comes along, he tempts us, we fall to the temptation. And once that has happened, then there is damage and suffering is the result. First Peter 5.8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It's kind of like this, my one of my daughters is um, pretty sensitive. She took some training from a CIA guy how to subdue someone. Uh, you know, if there's a problem, I taught her at a young age how to pluck out a man's eye if there's an issue. You know, things like that. And she had to take a course on, uh, what do they call it, the shooter. You know, if a shooter comes in because she's in the health and fitness industry. And she said... She was telling us yesterday, when you go into a restaurant, make sure you're always facing the door, that you know who comes in. You know, just some stuff you'd never thought you had to worry about. 
And now it seems like it's everywhere. Crazy people are out there. And I mean that literally they are out of their minds thinking this. And that's because there is a, a drought of who God is and what he stands for and how he can bring healing. And Satan is the first one. He is the, the main, he is the admiral, so to speak. He is the general that is making sure that people get placed into high places so that God is not mentioned. Did you know back in 2011, the state of Hawaii at that point, they now prohibit prayers in the Senate over there, their Congress. Uh, they decided to do that because the ACLU uh, said several people were coming in and praying and ending in the name of Jesus and praying in the name of Jesus and that just was not tolerable and they were going to bring a suit against the state of Hawaii. So Hawaii relented and said no more prayers from anybody inside of the Senate. And so Satan, he has people in high places working. The ACLU was one of those. BLM is another, Antifa, uh, those in the uh, higher higher echelons of the Democratic Party, I don't. I don't think that the normal person in there necessarily realizes that, and that's okay. And even in the Republican Party, there are people working against what is good and what is right, and so it's not limited to one political bent or another. But Satan, he's at the top, and he's working those people who are there. And then the fourth one is God. God is responsible for some of the suffering that we endure. Now, it's not that he's coming along and saying, oh, it's a good day to punish one of my believers. He doesn't do that. Now, are there tests for us? Did you ever provide a test for your children to see how they would do? And maybe they'd get injured. Did you ever teach a child how to ride a bike? Well, yeah, you you put them in a flotation device, even though they weren't in the water, and then you gave them the training wheels on the outside, and you held onto the seat, and you held onto the handlebar, and you're, okay, let's go, and you'd let go a little bit, and grab, and let go, and, and you'd see how they would do. Then slowly, after they had the helmet on, you, you took off the training wheels, and biting your nails and you're wanting them to do this. This is going to be a trial, learning how to balance. My grandson, he's learning how to walk and now he is everywhere. He's, he's going from room to room, opening up everything, picking up everything. Everything goes in the mouth. You guys know how that is. And, and so he's going to have some trials. Yesterday he was next to a chair and he landed on the chair wrong and it hit him in the ribs and the big lip came out, you know, and he was hurting, and it's a trial. But you allow those trials to come because you care. You want your child to grow. You want your child to mature. And there's going to be bumps and bruises along the way. And so that's how we get the suffering that comes from God. We know that Job, his wife, she said, curse God and die because he was suffering so much. And he replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Job was loved by God, and God chose him for a trial that had not only benefited him, but us. And if God wants to do that, we have to be able to say, Okay, Lord, you're the maker. I'm willing. So this idea of suffering, we're all going to suffer. We suffer a little bit when we start out. And as we get older, we suffer more. And some people suffer more than others. And it doesn't seem fair. But God 
is a just God. He knows exactly what state we're in. He knows that we ourselves are going to make errors and bring about suffering and the world is going to cause us to suffer and Satan's going to cause us to suffer and he brings his own trials, God does, to us and we suffer under that, but it's all right because we're going to go to a place where there is no more suffering. If we endure here, we will be blessed there. So that needs to be our attitude. And I know that, especially in our society, we live our lives in such a way where we want to pad our surroundings where we have no more suffering. We're able to just relax. We're able to just coast. I did that in high school. My last year, I didn't want any hard classes. So I packed them all at ninth, 10th, and 11th grade. And I, I got that done, actually, 10th and 11th. We had what was known as high school and junior high back there and I packed them all there so the last year it so easy underwater basket weaving I mean it, you know <laughs> bachelor survival it, it was just a really easy year it was a blessed year but I really didn't grow much academically in that year and and that's what we have a tendency to do we want life easy we should say God whatever you want for my life if it is comfort, I'll receive it. If it is suffering for the sake of someone else or for you, I'll receive it. And God knows what is good. And you don't have to worry about saying that. And all of a sudden God goes, finally, I'm going to bring some suffering in your life. He, he, he doesn't do that. Our God is a loving and compassionate God. Now, a couple of examples of this suffering. Acts chapter 5, I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. At that time, the Christian believers, they knew that there were those who did not have much that became believers. The poor, the poor in spirit, the Lord loves those and he wants to take care of them. And so the Christian church at that time, they would sell their possessions and they would share the money with those who did not have. Or they would take their possessions and share them with others. There was a couple that did this, Ananias and Sapphira. They took a piece of property and they sold it. And they decided between themselves, well, look, we're going to tell the apostles that this is how much we sold it for and we're going to hold back some of the money for ourselves. They conspired to do this. And so that's what they did. And they went, of course, to the apostles. And uh, first it was Ananias. He went there and they said, oh, Ananias. This is Bill's version of the Bible. He walked in. How are you doing, Ananias? Great. We have some money here. We sold some property. Oh, you did. And we want to give this money uh, to the help of people. Uh, okay. And this is how much we sold it for. And, of course, Peter says, oh, you sold it for that much. Yes, we sold it for that much. And Peter said, who has filled your heart? Or what has filled your heart to lie to God on this? Because you lied to God, you could have not sold the property and kept the money and wouldn't have been a problem. But you lied to God. And because he lied to God, you guys know the story. What happened? He fell dead right there on the spot. And his wife comes in looking for Ananias. He didn't come home for dinner. So Peter asked, how much did you sell the property for? She said the same amount her husband did. Guess what happened to her? They carried her out as well. Died right there. Do you think that brought some fear into the people in the church at that point? You bet it did. I mean, when there's punishment that comes or judgment that comes it strikes fear in the heart of those who are around us that's why if somebody who is a criminal is not charged for that criminal event 
that's when we just say, well, what can I get away with? But if they are, and they're prosecuted immediately, everybody goes, you better not, or this will happen to you. And see, that's how those who are doing evil today are emboldened. They get out there, they're not held accountable, and because they're not held accountable, what happens? Chaos. And when the chaos takes place, there's theft, there's murder, there's ransacking, there's fire. All of those things that we see taking place in our country, all because somebody doesn't want to hold someone else accountable. And the, those in authority are the ones who are supposed to hold others accountable. Now, the same thing works in a household, in the family, and in the church, in the government. That's the way it should be. This is how God had designed it. Now, um, there is a chance that you will be persecuted, that you will suffer for no reason of your own. People will say things you didn't do. They will say you said words you didn't say. And they will say you did things that you didn't mean to do. All in an effort to impugn you. And you might feel righteously indignant over something like that. And you should. So how do you act as a result of all of that? Well, we'll we'll eventually get to that, this idea of suffering, how we're supposed to act. I think most of you know. But as we continue in First Corinthians, or excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter one, we had Paul here, who was suffering under accusations. He was suffering under this accusation of inappropriate conduct, also being accused of being insincere. He was accused of being a dictator, and accused Paul of being boastful. All of those things. And if I read the entire New Testament and all the books that he wrote. I don't see any of these things being true. And so he mounted a defense against these accusations in the second letter. Now, if you remember, there were four letters total that were exchanged between Paul and the church in Corinth. We only have two, and one of them is is believed to be a compilation of just two of them. So Paul explains his motives first by conduct, in verse 12, and we'll go through and we'll read the passage here. So he explains his, his motives by his conduct, not only his conduct in the world, but his conduct towards the church in Corinth, that he uh, was not acting according to worldly wisdom, but he was acting according to God's grace, and he makes that case, and we'll read that. And also, he explains his motives in his previous writings. What he wrote, he says, was clear, and easily understandable. In First Corinthians, we just went through that. You know, which part do you want to go to? Do you want to go to chapter 6, where it says, don't take another believer to court. Don't let there be divisions among you. That's clear, that's lucid, that's understandable. It's not nebulous. It's, it's not something that's smeared where you can't understand it. When it comes to divorce and remarriage, he explained that in First Corinthians chapter 7. In First Corinthians chapter 15, he talked about the resurrection, If there is no resurrection, we're to be pitied beyond all measure. With everybody else that's in the world, we are to be pitied the most. And so he explained these things clearly. But apparently there's some people coming along and saying something along the line of, did he really say those things? And they brought some, not clarity, but they brought some, I'm going to use the word, opaqueness kind of like frosted glass. You can see that there's somebody on the other side, but they made it very unclear. So 
He explained his conduct in the world and towards those in the church. In his writings, he wrote in a clear fashion, easily understood. And as he's explaining this, he's hoping to restore confidence among the members of the church that remember what I told you, remember what I wrote you. And in planning his visit, he wanted to plan to make two trips, but some possibly insinuated that he wasn't coming at all. And he actually got deferred. He got delayed on one trip. And we know that this is told to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. It says, some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. And so there was this idea that he wasn't going to show up. Now, in planning this visit, he wanted to explain to them that he was not being double-minded concerning his visits and his doctrine that he delivered to the church in Corinth. It was not yes and no And no, and yes, this is a difficult portion of Scripture to understand when Paul writes this. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But he's not teaching yes and no, and we'll go through that. We'll explain that. And then also in his visit and in his teaching, Paul, Silas, and Timothy all preached the same message, the same doctrine. They were consistent. I just had um, somebody communicate to Patty yesterday uh, we've known them for a long time, and they've gone to a couple of different churches, and and they've said, you know, that they're just not teaching the Bible what the Bible has to say. And this one particular church is getting off into the the social uh, aspect of the gospel, just taking care of people and worrying about them, not explaining what God's desire is for us in society, and that's social justice, doing what God considers to be just inside the society in which we live. And so there is a drought of those, and I, I hear it uh, from time to time more and more, that nobody is just teaching the Bible what the Bible has to say, going through the entire counsel of God. And then Paul explains his motives by saying that it is God who establishes the messengers and the hearers as well. If somebody comes along who is a false teacher, and there are plenty of false teachers out there, are you able to recognize who they are as opposed to those who are true to the faith, who are teaching what is true, right, and just? Could we bump up the heat in here just a little bit? I feel a little chill up here, and I'm above you guys like by about six feet. So uh, just a degree or two, that would be helpful. And so he establishes messengers. He is the one who appoints pastors and teachers and prophets and apostles. And Paul is certainly an apostle. Uh, They knew that at this particular point. He makes the case for what kind of apostle he is as opposed to those super apostles in 2 Corinthians here. And he says that both the believer and the messenger have been anointed, sealed, and given his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing the things that are to come. And we'll read about that. And the purpose of postponing his visit, the one that we talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, he gives a reason for that, so that the church would be spared a rebuke. Now, the church in Corinth was a, a new church, lots of believers, lots of zealousness, lots of error. And Paul was correcting that error by 1 Corinthians. And he laid out the doctrinal differences between what they were practicing and what God desires. And he explained it, as I just previously said, in a lucid fashion. They could easily understand what he had to say. And they were still blowing it. And there were still these teachers that were in there, those who claimed to be apostles and maybe even those who claimed to be prophets. And he would have, if he would have showed up as an apostle 
that was on the right side of things, what do you think would have happened to the church? It's almost like cleaning house. You! Drops dead over there. And this one! And rebukes that one over there and admonishes this one. And it would have wreaked havoc inside of the church. And he said it was for your benefit that I didn't show up and do all these things. Because the Apostle Paul, as I read him, he is one passionate guy. He is determined. He is not going to be sidetracked. And if somebody does something wrong and messes with God's sheep, I believe he's going to show up and do something about it. That's who he was. And so Paul wished to avoid being harsh. Paul desired to be filled with joy when they met and strengthen the believers in their faith when they got together. That was what is in the rest of uh, First Corinthians, excuse me, Second Corinthians, chapter two. Now, going on with this, in verse twelve, it says, "Now this is our boast." Our conscience testifies, and we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relationship with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. Now, take that out in what is implied from that passage. There are those who in the relationships in the world and the relationships with those in Corinth, they weren't in a spirit of holiness or sincerity. You see how Paul, he's implying that by what he's reading here. He says, this is our boast. We get to boast that this is what we did. Others don't get to boast that that is what they did. And the people themselves, they can recognize this because they too have the Spirit of God. He says, we have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. So there are churches that are out there that act according to worldly wisdom. Now, when I went to seminary, worldly wisdom was a abounding there. Uh, there were only a few courses that were very interesting and helpful to me. Uh, the biblical counseling was a terrible course that I took because they just talked about Freud and Jung and, and psychology and its invention. And uh, it was a, a terrible environment to be there. There was another one who was helping out uh, the Worldwide Church of God under Herbert W. Armstrong. That was a cult at that time, and they seemed to be emerging, but he was in complete error in neo-Orthodox theology. If you want to know what that is, go ahead and look it up. And Karl Barth and Mel Bruner, and, and just they're way off. And, and so that was in seminary, and that's why they call it cemetery, because that's where a lot of Christians go to die. And, and so it, I was there, and then there was this one guy... I, a professor I gotten into an argument with in class. I didn't really argue with him. I just pointed out some things and he became very upset. Veins were popping out of his neck and his face became all red and he was pointing at me and I go, what? Scripture says what it says. You know, he, he didn't believe you could see God's handiwork, general revelation in creation. I said, well, what about the Psalms? What, what about the book of Romans? And well, he just, he just blew up at that point and of course, everybody else in the room, you know how that authority comes down. They, I'm not going to say anything. You know, I'm just going to sit there. I'm not like that. I don't like to do that. And, and so this idea of the worldly wisdom, it was creeping into the seminary as well. And in the seminary, they taught you how to build a church. And I had to do a paper on it. And this is what you had to do. You had to look at a community in which you were going to go. You had to do a feasibility study. You had to see who you were trying to reach. 
You had to see the race and gender of all the people that were there. You had to see the socioeconomic income of all those people. You had to find this information. Then you had to drive around town and find out which buildings were available, which ones would not be a good place to meet if there was a parking lot, if there was enough room to accommodate the people. And you had to put this down into a report. And once you did all of that, then you had to draw a certain conclusion about the culture that you were trying to reach and how you had to adjust yourself to meet the culture. And then once you did that, you made a recommendation of where you should go, how you should start the church, and lay out a business plan for opening up the church. It was called Church Growth. See, Peter Wagner, he wrote a book about it. We had to read the book. We had to devour it. And he's one of these apostles. He passed away a couple of years ago. He's one of these apostles that he would receive money, quote-unquote, to bless somebody else with some of this insight. And just a charlatan. And we were taught that. It was worldly wisdom. They took the business plan from the world and they installed it into seminary. And then I was instructed to go take it back to my pastor. Here, this is yours. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to move down the street, get on the main drag right over there and take this building over because it's vacant and you do all this and things will be fine and church will grow. No, that's not how you grow a church. How do you grow a church? You just teach the word. You give it to the people. If they are sheep, they grow. They get fat. Have you ever seen fat sheep? One of the things, Calvary Chapel of Mesa and Calvary Chapels in general, we had um, this one guy, his name was Dave. And he, he was a good guy. He was a worship leader. He made this picture of the sheep. And the sheep had four little legs and wool that went all around him. And all you could see is two eyes and a mouth and a nose right there. And he was fat. And it's a Calvary Chapel where the sheep like to feed. Somebody gets that fat, they need to be culled from the herd. And those individuals who feed, it's good to feed, but you need to go out and do the work. Once you're healthy and you're fed, that's the idea. So the sheep like to feed, that's good. They go out and they multiply, but if they're just sitting there getting rotund, you know, we just, spiritually speaking, we just want to make sure that you burn off that energy. You put it into those who are out there. Paul goes on to explain in verse 13. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. Remember I told you the first Corinthians was very lucid, very clear. As you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. So he's encouraging them. He's hoping for reconciliation. He's hoping to bring them over to the side of the Lord and not the side of the worldly wisdom or the unholiness that is inside the church by these quote-unquote super apostles and these teachers that are ruining the church on the inside. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Now, even in that, he's saying, I'm hoping that you'll fund my passage as I go on from seeing you guys uh, to Judea. And he says, when I planned this, did I do it lightly? No, it means he sat down, he tried to pencil out everything, where he was going to go, what he was going to do, so he could come back twice and be a blessing to the church in Corinth. He says, or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say, yes, yes, and no, no. Now see, this is where it gets a little confusing. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God 
Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. How would you like to write a paper just on that section? Yes, no. Yes, yes, and no, no. You see how it's kind of convoluted. What is he really trying to say there? He's saying that those things that he taught, that Silas taught, that Timothy thought, they are all the same. And they are all different from what these other teachers are teaching. It's not, yes, you can do this, but no, you can't. It's like, can you separate from your husband who is an unbeliever now that you've become a believer because there would be unclean, right? And Paul goes, no, this is the yes. You stay with them because you might be a witness to them and they might end up being saved. Where some of these teachers were probably, I don't want to read too much into scripture, but they're saying, oh, you need to separate for that, from that unbeliever. And there are people like that today. Uh, I showed up to the youth group a couple of weeks ago and I gave them a, a little... I showed him a little pamphlet by this guy. His name was Bobby Bible, is what he called himself. And he was at a men's conference uh, back about a decade ago. And he was encouraging all men to leave their wives and be, leave, live single lives for the Lord. Abandon their whole families. And all the guys, they were all Calvary Chapel guys. They're going, what? And he was surrounded like ants on a cube of sugar. You know, they, they just came right in. And, oh, they, and they were quoting scripture at him left and right. And he had this big banner, you know, Bobby Bible that was out there. And they knew the word and they opposed him. And nobody got out of there not knowing what the truth was. And that's what Paul is talking about. He goes, I gave you simple doctrine that this is what you're supposed to do. And some people are saying, no, you're supposed to do this other thing. It's not yes and no. In Christ, everything is yes. You look to the teachings of Scripture. This is what you're supposed to do. Is this what I'm supposed to do? Yes, this is what you're supposed to do. It's not in conflict. And there's somebody, some people that are causing conflict inside the body. So his motives, as he explained them, he explained the heart in which he dealt with the people. Uh, he explained his conduct, his writings, and the planning of his visit. It is God who established the messengers. And then the purpose for postponing the visit, that he didn't want to be harsh with them. He says down in verse 21, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So with these three things that are right here, it is God who anoints somebody for a particular work. Now, in James chapter 5, if there's anyone sick among you, you're supposed to take the elders of the church, anoint the individual who is sick with oil, and pray for them. So there is that anointing with oil. But there is also an anointing with the Spirit of God. For instance... Samson had an anointing with the Spirit of God. Samson, and I just use this with the youth too. Samson, <clears throat> when you picture Samson, maybe you've heard me say this before, when you picture him, what does he look like to you? Arnold Schwarzenegger? Does he look like that? Lou Ferrigno, remember him? He was the original Hulk. You know, he'd turn all green, that type of thing. Is that how you imagine him? I think 
it's my personal opinion, I cannot verify it in scripture, that he was under five foot. And he probably didn't have much muscle on him. But he could tear gates off of a city. Now that would be something God would do. He uses the weak things to confound the strong, the foolish things to confound the wise. That would be so in keeping with God. So here comes this little guy, you know, comes up and, all right, you're going to stop it, you bad Philistines. And they look at him and go, yeah, you and whose army? Me and the Lord. And, you know, the things that he did, he was so strong. And his ultimate demise was where he was placed between two pillars and he just pushed them at the temple of Dagon, their God, the Philistine God. And, and so I, I think that he had the anointing, I believe, he had the anointing from God. Who else had anointing? Well, Saul, King Saul, the first king in Israel, he had the anointing, but it was removed from him. King David had the anointing. Samuel had the anointing. Moses had the anointing. There are all kinds of individuals in the Old Testament that had the anointing. We also have the anointing on any task God would give us to do. He provides for us the gifts of the Spirit, which is an anointing by God to carry out the task he has placed before us. And then there is also his seal. Now, who can break a seal? In the Old Testament, New Testament, the only person who could break a seal was one who was authorized to do so. If you broke a Roman seal and you weren't authorized to do so, you could be in trouble. You might even face death if you do that. And so when God places his seal, who can break the seal? No one but God. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you, I think you guys know what a seal is. If you would take a scroll and you would open up the scroll and you get to the end of the scroll, you'd take some wax and you put wax on the end and you take a signet ring and you put the signet ring or a seal that you had made separate from that and you'd put it in the, the uh, hot wax and it would form a seal on the scroll. And so we have been sealed uh, with his ownership on us. And of course, that's, of course, that seal is the Holy Spirit, and it cannot be broken. And he goes on to say that he has put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. There are individuals, medicine, are you in here? You cannot say anything, a youth group. Okay? Because we came across Hebrews chapter uh, 6. In chapter 6 in Hebrews, beginning in about verse 4, it talks about individuals who have tasted the heavenly gift, the goodness of God, all of these things they, they have experienced. They understand what salvation is. And it seems to say that they have lost their salvation. And I gave this task to several of the youth because... Some of these youth at Alpine, they're teaching the book of Hebrews. I said, well, what have you done with chapter 6? Well, you don't know. I said, you need to come back and explain it to me. Can you lose your salvation or not lose your salvation? I don't believe you can. If you read just a little bit farther, and this is what you can't tell them. If you read a little bit farther in verse 9, verse 9 says, I expect better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. So all the things that are listed before don't accompany salvation because he says, I expect better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. And that's what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. If you had a guarantee from Blockbuster that they would supply you a lifetime of tapes, 
What kind of guarantee is that? If you had a guarantee that you could have a shopping spree for life at Kmart, uh, there might be a Kmart somewhere, but I think that they're all gone. What if you could have food for life from Safeway? There's no Safeways here. You guys remember any Safeways here? I, I think they're Vons now, um, and there may be Safeways in other states, but not in San Diego. And you see how that works? If he gives you a, the Spirit of God as a deposit guaranteeing the things that are come to come, how good's the guarantee? It's only good for as long as the company is in business. How long is God going to be in business for? Forever. So you got the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You can't just throw away the salvation. Once you're saved, that's it. Now, you might be a disobedient child. I think all of us have been there. Or you might be walking with the Lord. Either way, in the book of 1 Corinthians, when it talks about the rapture of the church, it says, we will all be changed. And I I explained this when we went through it. All the people in Corinth were affected by bad, carnal people inside the church. And so, who gets to go? Anybody who names the name of Christ. Now, it's not this easy-come-lucky grace. It's, there has to be sincerity and repentance involved with that. So going on, verse 23, I call God as my witnesses that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth, not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand firm. So if you find yourself suffering, and Paul's making a case, you know, the suffering he's going through, he's saying, look, you don't have to believe everything you're told. We're supposed to first examine ourselves. And I'm sure that's what Paul did. Did Paul act in a a holy way? Was he acting well with the world outside the church as well as those inside the church? In the Psalms it says, Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. So if we're suffering, that's the first thing we want to do. We want to make sure if we're suffering like Paul was suffering, he's under this cloud of uh, they're not confident in him and he's done so much for them and he's made the case. I'm sure he did introspection. He looked inside. And if we're wrong, we need to admit it. Psalm 38 verse 18 says, I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Then we take strong action. And then also if somebody wants to come against you, they want to accuse you of different things, of being a tyrant, if they want to accuse you of being obstinate. Just be silent. You don't have to defend yourself. The Lord is the greatest defender of all. Psalm 35, verse 23, Awake and rise to my defense. Contend for me, my God, my Lord. And it was King David who did this over and over and never take revenge. I've had several opportunities in my lifetime to take revenge. I have plotted I have schemed, I have desired with all my might to get back. Bad things, you would think. No, yes, it's bad things. We're never to do that. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. By the way, I never carried any of them out. It is mine to avenge, I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip, their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. So I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on the rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. 
many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So you let the Lord defend you. He is perfectly capable of taking care of you and I. And if they're suffering and it's caused by others, just make sure you do the introspection. And if they're completely wrong, let the Lord defend you. That's how we're supposed to operate. And that's what Paul did. Now, he made the case inside of Second Corinthians here of why they should believe he has acted in their best interest. And if you need to do that, that's okay. But you don't go out and take that hill that says you are wrong and you are going to suffer for that, just let the Lord defend. He is a good and gracious, compassionate and loving God. And he is totally capable to take care of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would multiply it, use it in our lives. And when it comes to suffering, I pray that you would help us to glean the wisdom that Paul was using and making his defense, that we do not just make things up or retaliate or seek revenge but we simply state our case and remain silent and let you be the defender. And we'll trust you to help us in this. In Jesus' name, amen.